according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 28. We are in Proverbs chapter 28 this morning, getting so close. Because 28 and 29 are, are a unit. We're handling them as a unit. And then once we finish 29, then we've just got chapter 30, chapter 31, in a series that started in 2014, uh, will be uh, will be concluded. And it's kind of another one of those 10-year sagas like we did with Life of Christ from 2004 to 2014, and now with Proverbs from 2014 to 2024. So I'm excited to uh, to see how the Lord provides for this. We are uh, dealing with a marvelous verse, though, this morning, Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And this is such a powerful verse on confession. We started it last week. We're going to get back to it again this morning. I think it's a great uh, compliment to 1 John 1, 9. We understand uh, about the doctrine of rebound and the biblical confession of sin, whereby we can uh, be restored to fellowship and uh, cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so I think it's important that we look at the details and make sure that we're not abusing a, uh, a doctrine, as I think some, uh, some Christians may perhaps uh, actually do. And uh, we want to address some of those matters as well. So before we start, let's take a moment for silent prayer. You can use the opportunity to confess anything that needs to be confessed and to uh, humble your heart for the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word, the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness once again, Father, to bless our time of study, open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so he who conceals will not prosper. Does you no good to hide your sin or act like you didn't do it or try to deny that you're carnal when you are carnal? God knows you're carnal. You know you're carnal, so quit lying about it. All right? Just confess it, be restored to fellowship, and, and move on. Uh, uh, concealing it does nothing whatsoever. But he who confesses and forsakes. And I really want to stress that forsaking. It's a second step. It's a second element, right? More than just the confession. And we want to understand the vocabulary. Of course, there's Hebrew vocabulary. There's Greek vocabulary. In 1 John 1, 9, we have if we confess our sins. And I'm going to go ahead and bring this up as well. 1 John 1, 9, we know it. I'm just going to open it up and I'm going to set it down here and leave it on the bottom of the screen so we can stare at it for an hour. There we go. Because that's not the only verse in the Bible for confession. It's not the only verse in the Bible that describes a, a carnal believer that needs to be back in fellowship again, right? So anytime a believer is walking in darkness and needs to return to walking in the light, he's looking for, he needs to confess. Confession of sin. Okay, this is fundamental. It's not a, even, it's not limited to the church age. It's been a feature of every dispensation. You can, you can find it for Israel. I mean, we've we got a, a proverb here that was written during the dispensation of Israel. We can find confession in the Old Testament when Israel had their stewardship. It's not limited to the church age. Even before Israel's stewardship, we can find confession uh, with the Gentiles. We can find Noah. We can find Job. We can find other examples of Gentile confession before Israel, before the law. It's a facet. I think it goes all the way back to the very first sin. When, when the Lord comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he calls out to Adam and he says, where are you? He's looking for confession. And of course, Adam blew it. He blamed his wife and she blamed the serpent. There was a lot of blame. We, we know that when you're blaming others, you're not confessing your sin. Okay? We've got to be clear on that. Confession of sin just uh, gives it to the Lord and says, look, this is what I did. I'm carnal. And you are agreeing with the Lord. That's the key is the agreement. Homologeo is the vocabulary in, uh, in 1 John 1.9. This is the term for confess. And there's other confessions too besides sin confessions, but uh, beyond what we're going to get into here today. But homologeo is the verb where you have homo and logeo, right? Homo is the same. Log, logeo is to speak the same. And you're speaking the same thing. I'm going to go ahead and leave that open so 
We'll see it again, I'm sure. All right. So confession. Speaking the same thing. If you're saying something different about your sin than God would say about your sin, then it's not confession. Okay? So if you try to make excuses, God's not making excuses. You're saying something different than what God's saying regarding your sin. Or if you're blaming, or if you're you know, blaming the serpent, blaming the woman, or other things that you might be saying that are different. Here's King Saul who says, I did obey. It's just the people made me save the animals and the king and whatever. That's a, that's a weasel excuse, and you're saying something different than what God's saying. Okay? And we have several other examples of that through the Scripture. So I do want to stress that homologato is you have to be saying the same thing that God is saying. Otherwise, you're not confessing your sin biblically. Likewise, the attitude of forsake. Now, because forsake does not appear in 1 John 1, 9, I think it gets minimized or it gets ignored or it even gets denied on the part of different believers that have had the doctrine of rebound. They, they think that all they've got to do is just name it and claim it and they're walking in the light again. Okay? And it's, it's a sad application of name it and claim it. And because confession is not admission, it is confession. You're not just admitting what you did. You are saying the same thing that God says regarding your sin. And this element of forsaking is absolutely non-negotiable. You cannot, if you intend to do it again, if you're in the process of doing it again, if this is something that you're doing all day, every day, then confessing it with, with every intention of doing it again, you know, an hour from now, that's not confessing and forsaking. And it's not homologeo. And I would put forth that you are not cleansed from all unrighteousness. You are not filled with the Holy Spirit. You are not walking in the light. That you are still in darkness because you haven't confessed. And that's what we're highlighting in the process of this. Okay? The confession has to include the forsaking. Now, we are also finding... I want to make sure that when I click, this is the window that gets moved. So I'm going to uh, highlight this one. Send hyperlinks here. All right. So point A. And we did A and B last week. We ran out of time as we got to C, so I colored it so I could remind myself here. A um, couple of other passages that deal with uh, confession, including Leviticus 26.41 and Acts 19. And so here's more confession principles. Confession may possibly require the humbled sinner to make amends or to surrender sinful items. In other words, sometimes the confession itself also has tangible physical activity that goes with it. Is it required every single time? No. But it may be required on occasion. It may be required as the circumstances determine. And so as we read in Leviticus 26.41, the Lord says, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Now, this is in Leviticus 26, and we know the context. is cycles of discipline. It's judgment upon Israel and, and what God does as he disciplines them and he restores them. He disciplines them and he restores them. So I was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled... Ah, so captivity is not, um, it, 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 captivity is not inevitable. They might avoid it, or they might return from captivity, or they may not even go to captivity at all if they repent. If their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember their land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. You know, there's a benefit to them being in captivity. The land itself gets a break. (laughs) The land that they've been defiling all those years gets a a time to recover. All right. But now, bringing this into our application. (coughs) We observe, make amends for their iniquity. And we ask ourselves, hmm, uh, what's the context for that? What's the potential application? When we're adapting this, this is, a, this is national repentance by national Israel for their national discipline. So when we adapt this for personal sin and personal confession and personal applications in the church age, 
in what circumstances then do I not only have to confess my sins as unto the Lord, but do I also have to, and can I, make amends for my iniquity? At what point have I done a brother wrong? Have I done, and I'm not, I don't have to confess to them, because my sin is against the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned, but I may have offended them, I may have injured them, I may have harmed them, um, I may have harmed my family, I may have harmed my spouse, my children, my church. Who else have I damaged because of my sin? And so, yes, I confess, and yes, I'm restored to fellowship, and I can start serving the Lord again, but there may be some human relationships that require making amends. And I want to be... I want to highlight that for what it is. All right. There's also a passage in Acts. Uh, as the gospel is going forth and great revivals taking place and uh, tremendous ministry. You might think of some things here. And, and uh, seven sons of Sceva. This is a, a thing that makes me laugh when I read this because he thinks he can cast out demons just by naming the name of Paul and naming the name of Jesus. But... Anyway, uh, we get past that episode. But notice, Acts 19.18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Alright, so now I ask myself, what occasions are there? <laughs> I understand my confession is as unto the Lord. And my confession, my sin is against you and you only have my sin. And, and it's, it's in the privacy of my own priesthood. I'm praying to the Lord. I'm confessing my sins. But is there a, uh, a venue, is there an occasion where disclosing such practices can edify others? Can it bless others? Can it edify others? Can it warn others? David mentioned that he wanted to teach sinners uh, when he was confessing his sin, his adultery with Bathsheba. He wanted to use his failure as the opportunity to teach sinners to avoid those same things. So what's the context for disclosing their practices? And does that apply in the church age? Does that apply? I'm going to color it yellow because we're leaving these things as open questions until we satisfy our thinking on it biblically. Also, many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. I love this. To me, this is, this is very consistent with Proverbs 28, confess and forsake. What better way to forsake your witchcraft than to burn the, uh, the materials that you're using uh, for the witchcraft? brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone, and counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. Okay, that's a, that's a huge... You know, if you imagine a, a denarius is equal to one day's pay, so, you know, multiply that times 50,000 days, and uh, this, is a, this is a pretty hefty uh, uh, chunk of dough. <laughs> okay? So at what point then? Making amends, disclosing practices... Um, surrendering sinful items, whatever else it may be. But when you realize that you are confessing and forsaking and you realize, okay, you know what? This is, uh, this is a part of my life I'm putting behind me. And a very tangible way to put it behind me is if I get rid of some of the things that, that was associated with that particular sin. Okay? In whatever, whatever else it may be. Alright? And... Uh, Obviously, the applications can be as varied as our imagination might think of particular sin issues and particular uh, other things that, uh, that may happen. Such confession, sub-point B, such confession is an expression of repentance, a wholehearted return to the Lord. Now, uh, I realize that a lot of times when confession is presented, that uh, as it's taught, sometimes the issue of repentance is is minimized, it's uh, even denigrated, okay, when it shouldn't be. Uh, no, there is no verb of repentance in, in verse one in first John one nine, but does that mean it's wrong if you're under conviction and if your thinking has changed? I would say that you can't confess until your thinking has changed. Obviously, you had one kind of thinking while you were sinning. And now you've got a different kind of thinking that says, I need to confess this and start walking with the Lord. And so since your thinking has changed, what has happened? By definition, you have repented. You have metanoeod at the point that you decide, I'm going to confess this and get back in the light. I'm going to confess this and start walking with the Lord again. Okay? 
And so I think that's the right context to teach repentance in association with confession of sin, just like repentance in association with evangelism. It's something that happens in the process of getting you there, getting you to the point of gospel hearing, getting you to the point of, of uh, biblical confession. And so um, we can see different applications there. First Kings chapter 8, verses 47 through 50. Uh, this is the dedication ceremony for the building of the temple. This is Solomon in his, in his uh, message, in his prayer. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. So this is a passage, and you say, okay, well, metanoeo is not in 1 John 1, 9, fine, but I see repentance here. I see the verb for repentance along with the verb for confession. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them. Again, Israel is context. Uh, This is a national repentance that takes place, a national cleansing, uh, but still we're adapting principles that do apply to confession, Adapting Israel to the church, adapting corporate to personal. And, uh, and we see and we ask ourselves then, what is the role of repentance? What is the role? How is it to be with all your heart, with all your soul? Was that limited only to Israel? Or you and I also expected to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Okay, I believe that applies to us as well. So this is an easy principle to adapt over, taking a, an Old Testament passage and and assigning it a New Testament or a church age expectation. Psalm 51.17. And we, we, this is where we ran out of time because we used up almost a whole hour in Psalm 51. You can use a lot of time in Psalm 51 uh, when, when David gets caught in his adultery. This is the context for Psalm 51. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is his confession. Okay? And uh, he's asking for God's grace. He's asking for God's confession. He wants his our compassion. He wants his transgressions to be blotted out. He wants to be washed and cleansed from his sin. My, his transgression and his sin is ever before me. Think about that. Think about how God uses guilt. How God uses the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit to leave uh, the, you know, the memory and the guilt and the shame and the, the damage of a past sin in, uh, in the mind of an unrepentant sinner to bring them to that point, even breaking their bones, if that's necessary. Bringing them to the point that they finally have the, the public exposure and Nathan's agency here to, to spark the confession. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is a powerful principle. You know, he murdered Uriah. He committed adultery with Uriah's wife. You would think that he sinned against Uriah. No, all sin is against the righteousness of God. Uriah is a sinner, same as David is a sinner. The sin is not against Uriah. The sin is against the Lord. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. All right. Purify me. Wash me. Because we can't cleanse ourselves. We need Him to cleanse us. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You know, prolonged carnality is such that you even forget how to be joyful. You've lost the joy of your salvation. You've lost, you know, the the prolonged darkness has that kind of damage. Is this a metaphor here? Broken bones? Or is this literal? How How does God keep assigning more and more discipline the longer we keep our, our sin unconfessed? And remember that this baby wasn't born overnight. This is, we're talking nine months of carnality or more. You know, depending on how long he was carnal before the, the fornication. Alright. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
You know, ask God to, to provide the positive volition you don't have when you're freshly back in fellowship again. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now again, we're adapting this. Here's, here's an element you don't have to worry about in the church age. You and I, as church age believers, we have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. So even when we're carnal, even when we're out of fellowship, when we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, we still have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can never lose that. And so this is a, this is a prayer that an Old Testament believer could readily pray. David could pray that. You and I don't have to worry about that. Remember, in the Old Testament, sometimes the Holy Spirit would come and go often, frequently. Not the case in, uh, in the church age. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. When you're carnal, you don't have the joy of being saved because you're, you're living like an unbeliever. You're living like a carnal believer, and where's the joy in that? It's worldly joy, not God's joy. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. This is the passage I mentioned earlier where David wanted to use his confession as a teaching opportunity. The opportunity to warn others. The opportunity to, to, uh, to turn cursing into blessing and to uh, take an ugly event and make it edifying uh, by warning others against such, uh, such sins. Okay? This is where, again, disclosing evil practices and, and taking the affirmative actions to remedy, um, to make amends for your sin. Deliver me from my blood guilt, guiltiness. My tongue will joyfully sing. Open my mouth. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You were not pleased with burnt offering. David was very clear. It's not the ritual. It's not the religion. See, some people think, man, I've been a bad sinner for a while. I better get serious about going to church. And I'll just get real spiritual. I'll get real churchy. I'll get real, uh, you know, and, I, and I'll give a bunch of money in the grace box. And then my conscience will feel better. And I'm sure God will forgive me uh, if... <laughs> Because you know, I've had three or four real bad weeks. Let me let me get five or six real good weeks in there. That'll balance it out, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure things will be happy after that. No, it's not sacrifice. It's not burnt offering. It's not ritual. You can't have ritual without reality and expect it to mean anything. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. This is why I say. If it's legitimate biblical confession, again, to restate point B there, if it's legitimate biblical confession, such confession is an expression of repentance, a wholehearted return to the Lord, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It is a wholehearted repentance and return to the Lord. Thirdly, hiding and denying such sin is useless. Obviously, that goes well with verse 13. Concealing a transgression, you're not going to get away with it. Okay? You will not prosper, and God sees through it anyway. Hiding and denying the sin is useless. You can't cover it up. There's Achan in his cup. Did he get away with it? Not at all. He thought he did, but the Lord was way ahead of him. And they walked him through the, the exposure from the tribe to the clan to the family to him. And then the, uh, I, I like the uh, statement Joshua makes here in verse 19. My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord. Confession can be a glory. Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to Him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Do not hide it from me. And... Uh, you know, when you think about the, the, the beauty of confession in this context, think about, remember I said sometimes God will allow the guilt to be in the forefront of your thinking and it haunts you and it kind of brings you to that conviction. The Holy Spirit can use that to bring you to conviction. Well, Satan also loves to put your sin uh, at the forefront and likes to throw it in your face and likes to hold it against you, likes to use your sin and the fear of exposure as a, as, a, as a mechanism to keep you uh, serving Him, to keep you in darkness, to keep you from returning to the Lord. That you're, oh, you're so shamed, and how can you admit it? The neat thing is, is when you just have the simplicity of a child returning to your loving Father and confessing your sin, it's a, it's a glory and it's a praise and it's a thumb in the eye of that devil saying, uh, you know, I don't care what, you know, you threaten me with whatever, I'm going to confess this to my Father and be restored to, uh, to fellowship.
So do not hide it from me. Psalm 32, 3-5. This is uh, similar to... Some people attach Psalm 32 to Psalm 51, and I think they were both written on the same occasion. I, I, I think we don't have the context here the way we do in Psalm 51. And I don't believe you have to make the David and Bathsheba episode the only episode where David has a, a confession that he writes. David had plenty of failures in his lifetime. He confessed more than once. But happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so we have a great gospel message here, and a great salvation passage in Old Testament soteriology about what does it mean to be saved. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. Okay? And, and I am reading verses 3, 4, and 5, but there is a very timely Salah in between those verses. I believe the Salah is that um, musical interlude, or I think it's an imperative to think about what you just said. Process that. Meditate upon that truth. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Salah. Hiding the sin is worthless. It's worse than worthless. It's damaging. Then after the Salah, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. Now think about that. <laughs> okay? So think about hiding it and then think about confessing it. And realize that uh, this is what he calls for us to do. That's all he wants us to do. And again, this pattern goes back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. The Lord walking and saying, where are you? He's looking for confession. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? He's looking for confession. All he wanted to hear was confession. He does it in the very next chapter too. He goes looking for Cain and says, where is Abel your brother? He's looking for confession. And he doesn't get it. You know, uh, I don't know. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> what brother? Who are you talking about? Okay. He's looking for confession. Every time he's coming, he's looking for confession. We may find out. We don't know all the details of Satan's fall, but we may find out that a huge issue with respect to his fall and being locked into his fallen estate is his unwillingness to confess. His unwillingness to accept the terms of forgiveness that God, on a grace basis, may have very likely offered to the third of the angels that, that rebelled against him. And their unwillingness to confess might be, this is somewhat speculation on my part, I freely tell you, might be the reason why confession is such a dominant theme for humanity, because it's teaching lessons to those fallen angels related to their uh, failure to confess in uh, in their day. We'll find out when we get there. In uh, I've got a lot of theories we're going to find out when we get there and say, yeah, you were nowhere near the target on that one, but you were pretty close on this other one. That's a pretty good. How did you how did you figure that one out? Again, Psalm 51, 3. Uh, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. So uh, why hide it? Why deny it? It becomes undeniable when it's haunting you. Uh, Psalm 90 in verse 8. Psalm 90. And what's Psalm 90? This is Moses, right? This is the, the prayer of Moses. And uh, verse 7 says, We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Uh, I don't want my sins before the Lord. I want them in a bag behind his back. <laughs> I want them in, as far as the east is from the west. I want them in the depths of the sea. But here Moses is saying, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so, you know, we think we're getting away with it. We think we've hidden it. We think it's secret. And God just lays it right there on the table like a dirty, nasty, ugly, whatever, and says, well, look at this. <laughs> look what I see here. What is this? Again, asking for confession, seeking confession, desiring confession, because he doesn't want it in his presence. He wants it behind his back as well. He's going to take it and nail it to his son and be done with it forever. Secret sins in the light of your presence. All right. 
And then finally, 1 John 1.10. Now here's a follow-up to 1 John 1.9. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what's, what value is there in hiding your sin or denying it? You can claim it all you want, um, but it's not true. Okay, You are a sinner. And uh, you're not going to make him a liar. You're the liar. And you're hiding and denying of your sin. All right. Another principle for confession. Confession equals speaking what is right concerning God. Here's Job 42. Job 42. And this great example is Old Testament and it's pre-Israel. And I believe Job was a contemporary of Abraham's grandfather. I pegged, based on lifetimes, based upon the decreasing lifetimes after the flood, and looking at the lifespans of the patriarchs from, from Noah down to Abraham, down to Isaac and Jacob, when you see that decreasing lifespan, and then you see where Job fits in that, in that curve, in that decreasing curve, I think it's... Uh, it's uh, and also, if we identify Job with Jobab of, uh, of Genesis chapter 10, or Genesis chapter 11, the descendants of... Uh, of, uh, of Eber. Anyway, this is pre-Israel. <laughs> okay, we can debate that some other time. There's no mention of Israel. There's no mention of Mosaic law. There's no mention of the Levitical priesthood. Uh, the Book of Job is absolutely set in a uh, pre-Israel Gentile context. And in this, uh, you have his repentance and his restoration. I think we're, we're familiar with this, right? Even people that, for a lot of Christians, the book of Job consists of chapters 1, 2, and 42. <laughs> okay. And then maybe some other stuff in the middle. But 1, 2, and 42 is like the totality of the book of Job for a lot of Christians in, uh, in his affliction and then his, uh, the happy ending at the end. All right. So Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. This is actually a confession as he's laying out where he missed the mark, where he fell short of the glory of God. And all of the argumentation and all of the um, accusations that he made that he leveled in those chapters, chapters 3 through 40, 41, okay? He says, Here now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. So instead of accusing God of being unfair, this is an opportunity for Job to ask questions and learn and grow. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I've even had some people tell me that Job never sinned anywhere in the first 41 chapters. Well, then why is he repenting and retracting in dust and ashes in, in uh, verse 40, chapter 42? That doesn't make any sense to me. I will admit that in chapter 1 he never sinned, and in chapter 2 he never sinned, because the text says that. But the text doesn't say that after chapter 2. And when you start getting into the accusation he makes in, in chapters 3 and following, there's a lot of verbal sin there. There's a lot of mental attitude sin there. Job is as carnal as you can get after chapter 3. That's why uh, he gets rebuked and God calls him the fault finder. He gets his own nickname from the Lord as the fault finder. That's, a, that's, that's not somebody that's still sinless. Okay? He's, he's been sinning since chapter 3 with all these accusations and defenses that he makes. But here's his confession. Here's him as he's speaking what is right. And specifically, hiding counsel without knowledge. He's confessing that. Declaring what he did not understand. He's confessing that. Things too wonderful which I did not know. He's confessing that. Now, the things he was saying and accusing God was, was, was wrong. And he, he was ignorant of the things that he was unaware of. He's asking to be instructed. And he's retracting and repenting in dust and ashes. So, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Okay? Spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. This is the, the homologeo that we just read here in chapter 42. It's not the totality of the argument. God is not blessing all of Job's statements from chapter 3 to chapter uh, 41. 
Okay. Specifically, spoken of me what is right is the confession Job just made in chapter 42. And Eliphaz and his friends had not done that. They were still justifying themselves. They, they felt everything they said was right starting in chapter 5. And it was not. So take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Here's an animal ritual that's not... Uh, it's similar, but not identical. Not It's not Levitical, okay? But it is an animal ritual. And uh, in order to be cleansed, in order to be restored, animals are going to die, and Job himself is going to be the priestly mediator. He's going to be the priestly mediator. So, uh, take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Okay? Now this is a confession procedure that we don't have to do today. right? We can confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't have to go to a priest or a mediator. We don't have to sit in a little confessional booth and, and need a, a Catholic priest to, to intercede for us. Okay? But this is the, the role that Job played in this time frame, in this dispensation. We see similar things with, with, uh, in the early chapters with Job and his adult children. We see other things with Noah. We see other things with Gentile priesthoods where there is intercessory confession. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Again, he says it in verse 7, he says it in verse 8, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He repeats himself. That gets my attention. <laughs> Alright, he said it twice. I like that. And God is the God of repetition. And there's value in repeating yourself. Let me say that again. Alright. There is value in repeating yourself. So the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Okay? And so this is a follow-up to the confession. It's like confess and forsake, confess and repent, confess, make amends, confess and disclose, confess and give up practices, confess and you know, don't be scared if God expects an and after your confession. Confess and pray for these three stooges. Okay? Because the restoration to fellowship, the restoration of blessings and possessions and happiness and all these things, it didn't happen when he confessed. It happened when he prayed for his friends. Notice that? So he confessed and... He prayed for his friends. It was his final test. His final, and this was probably harder than having boils from head to foot. <laughs> okay, praying for these rascals, these accusers, these satans, these—you know what they've been saying about me for the last thirty-eight chapters? Okay, and he had to pray for them. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. And and based on that, then the Lord increased what he had. Okay, pay attention to those details. Like when were, when were Eve's eyes open? When Adam sinned. The eyes of both of them were open. When was he restored? When he prayed for his friends. Not when he spoke what is right. Okay? I think there's some principles there. Then all, and so the Lord increased all that Job had twofold, all his brothers and sisters, and uh, yeah, the, the happy ending that happens here at the end of the book of Job. Okay? I would also say, uh, don't uh, <laughs> just because Job got back double what he had lost. Don't think that you know rebound is like a, a genie in a bottle. You can rub the thing and you can, you can get back double what you lost. Oftentimes, okay, consequences. When David confessed, he still faced consequences for the rest of his life. He had family discipline for the rest of his life. And, and damage that he did was, was observed in the lives of his children. Sons with sexual issues and other problems that, that crept in in a, 
a fight for the throne and, and different things that happened. David faced consequences even after he was restored to fellowship. So it's not always, you know, happily ever after and here's double what you lost and, and, uh, and issues there. It's kind of interesting that his wife is not mentioned here either. <laughs> Except for the fact that she's having all these babies. Okay. So he's going to have seven more sons and three more daughters. Well, Mrs. Job is going to have seven more sons and three more daughters. It's curious. All right. Let that go for now. Uh, more confession. Confession is not about worthiness. One of my favorite confession passages, the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Confession is not about worthiness. It's not uh, performance art. Okay? Because this, this kid is rehearsing his confession. He's, he's, re, he's, he's written out a very good speech. He's written out a marvelous soliloquy. He's, he's rehearsing it. He's ready to present it to his father when he returns. We know the story of the prodigal son and his sin and his lifestyle with the, with the pigs. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And and sometimes, you know, honestly, when you have been in darkness for so long, for days, weeks, months, years, whatever length of time it is, and you're in darkness, can you possibly remember every personal sin you committed in 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 the interim? No. You can't remember all the... And you're not even aware of most of them anyway. Maybe just this capital level, top level... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is a pathetic confession, honestly. Okay, It's not about worthiness. He's a son. You don't deserve to be a son. You just are. Right? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Is that what it's about? Is that a bargain? Are you bargaining for your restoration? Are you bargaining for, um, for a position that maybe you don't deserve the position you left, but maybe you can get something you know, lower, lesser? So he got up and he came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And now it's time to rehearse to, uh, to actually recite what he'd been rehearsing. Okay? Dress rehearsal's over. This is a live performance now. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's where he gets cut off. He doesn't get to finish his rehearsed speech. He doesn't get to the make me as one of your hired men part. He gets gets interrupted by the loving father that just stops it. The father says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Because we're going to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. We're going to be restored to fellowship. We are sons. Even when we're carnal, we're still sons. And so when we come back, do we have a new position now that we're in fellowship? No. It's the same position we had before we were out of fellowship. It's the positional truth doctrine of being in Christ. Confession is not about worthiness. If it was about worthiness, just hang it up. If it was about worthiness, we'd never be saved in the first place. And we're not we're not worthy to be saved. We're not worthy to be in Christ. So it's not about worthiness. Remember, he is faithful and just. He's faithful to his character. He's faithful to his standard. He's faithful to the payment that was already made on the cross. Why would he hold it against us when he already ex- he was satisfied and accepted the payment Jesus made on the cross? So he's faithful to the cross. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not about our worthiness. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Except for the older brother, of course. He's got, he's got his own carnality issues that will have to be dealt with here later in the chapter. All right? Another confession principle, point F. The church's corporate priesthood includes corporate prayer and even corporate confession. Now, I've heard this taught probably ten different ways. And it's very common, as it gets taught, for, for folks to say, okay, well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean what it says. Really? 
Well, what does it say? What does it mean? Well, I don't really know, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Wait a minute. What does it say? Okay. I like a literal hermeneutic. I like, I like to read the text for what it says. I want to put it in context. I want to apply it. And since we've done so good so far, going through Psalms and Proverbs and, and Old Testament passages and dealing with, with that, even the Gospel of Luke is still pre-Pentecost and it's not a church-age text. But here in the book of James, what are we dealing with? A church-age text. We're dealing with our application in the body of Christ. And uh, there's a therefore, and ask yourself, what's it there for? Um, anyway, there's a long chain of things here in James 5. It's written to believers. It's written to a local church. It's written to us for our application. Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. All right, so there's procedures, there's personal prayer, there's corporate prayer. Involve your elders, the elders of the church. Oh, well, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Wait a minute. Tell me the context here. Elders of the church. Hello? They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. A lot of debate about that. Say, well, okay, in the first century, we had apostles, we had healing, we had different things. I don't see miracles and healing here. I see anointing with oil. I see elders. Oil was used medicinally. We have, of course, we still to this day have essential oils. And we have other uh, things that can be employed. Paul says, drink a little wine for your stomach. There's, there's other things that can be done for physical health. Anyway, but there's prayer. Corporate prayer and the prayer of the elders in the local church. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Restore the one who is sick. That doesn't mean he's completely healed and he's in, he's in fit physical health. There's a restoration that's necessary. The sickness is God getting the attention of that sinner who needs to confess and disclose and repent and forsake and give up and whatever else that may need to be added to the and confess and forsake uh, pattern. The prayer often of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, whether you're healed or not, don't you want to be in fellowship? <laughs> okay. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, Again, there is a context for this. There is an application for this. I think there's a balance for this. That doesn't mean that every single sin you ever do is everybody else's business. Okay? That would be an extreme and that would be wrong. But it's also an extreme and wrong to take it the other end of the pendulum to say no sin you ever do is ever anybody else's business. That it's always between you and the Lord and you're never, ever, ever supposed to confess your sins to one another even though this verse says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So, how then do we establish the parameters? If it's every sin with everybody, that's, a, that's one extreme. Or if it's never any, not even one sin to never not even one anybody, that's the other extreme. Where do we find the application? Where is the appropriate application? What kind of sins and with what kind of believers? Well, we've already seen elders. We've already seen, I want to go to an older brother. I want to go to a pastor. I want to go to a deacon. I want to go, there's got to be somebody. It doesn't have to be the whole church, but I want to find one or two. I want to find somebody I can pray with. And somebody that I can ask for prayer. And if that means, okay, I mean... <laughs> Sometimes it's humbling. And, and I think that's why people don't want to share prayer requests. You know? If, if I've got a, whatever, if I've got a drinking problem, or I've got a pornography problem, or I've got a drug problem, or I've got a whatever. And, and how, do I, how do I ask my pastor to pray for me if I don't tell him that I've got a drinking problem? <laughs> okay? How do I ask for that prayer without confessing that I need prayer in this regard? See how this works? 
just the just the activity of asking for prayer when it says pray for one another the activity of praying for one another includes you know well i've got an unspoken item i don't want to tell you what it is cuz doctrine of privacy is none of your business but i i uh, i'm tired of just bearing this burden by myself and the scripture says bear one another's burdens I, I want you to pray for me. I just don't want you to know why. Okay. Well, all right. First thing maybe is we can overcome some pride issues that are keeping you from just humbling yourself before me, humbling yourself before the Lord. Just spit it out. What am I praying for? Okay. God knows, and I'm not going to think any less of you. Shock. You're a sinner. How about that? Me too. Let's uh, let's pray one for another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. I mean, especially if, and again, I think the indication is so that you may be healed. Again, the sickness is a sin issue. If he's committed whatever sins, they may be forgiven him. So clearly there is prolonged darkness. There is ongoing discipline that has led to broken bones and other physical things. And uh, this brother needs help. Absolutely. Let's get more prayer engaged. Let's, let's get this out there. Okay? Again, I'm, th- I'm saying with a balance. We're not going to stand before the whole church and spill dirty laundry everywhere, but with the discernment of elders and mature brothers, mature sisters, different things, men with women, men, women with women, this is how we can serve one another. I hope this makes sense. This is like a ten-minute snapshot of what should be a lengthy study in the book of James. Okay? And uh, which is not on our church website because I've not taught this book. <laughs> but... Uh, Cliff Beveridge did a marvelous job with this book. Okay? And you can find his James notes on his church website. Church corporate priesthood includes corporate prayer and even corporate confession. Confession is, is the forgiveness and cleansing mechanism for walking in darkness. And really, 1 John 1 9 is not an isolated verse, it sits in a larger context of verses 5 through 10. Handle verses 5 through 10 as a unit, and you do marvelous with it. Separate it out, or take verse 9 as if it's isolated and ignore the rest of it. It's just an abuse. It is wrong. The message is about walking in the light versus walking in darkness. You can do one or you can do the other, but we're commanded to walk in the light. Do not be walking in the darkness. If you find yourself in darkness, then yes, thank God we have confession. But there's other procedures that should keep us in the light so that we don't walk in darkness. What about the mechanism that keeps us from committing a sin in the first place? Okay? So, uh, let's see. Got to keep the Colonel's uh, basketball analogy in place, right? So, he coined rebound because of a basketball analogy. You miss the mark, the ball bounces off the rim or it bounces off the, the backboard and you rebound it. Okay? So, he used rebound as his metaphor, a basketball analogy. Well, what happened? What's the circumstance in basketball where you don't need to rebound? You make the shot, okay? You, you swish the ball through the net, right? Nothing but net. And so we need to have, I'm going to coin this, I'll, I'll write a book and make millions. No, I'm not. Um, but the doc, instead of the doctrine of rebound, how about the doctrine of nothing but net? Okay? And this is what it means to walk in the light. This is where the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light. So how do I do this? What's the mechanism for doing this? Walking in the light. It means revelation, illumination. We're living in the Word of God. We're we're observant of what the Word of God exposes and we're walking accordingly. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is, this is the, this is the uh, nothing but net procedure whereby you don't have to 1 John 1, 9 because you've never sinned. If you 1 John 1, 7 every day, you'll never sin again. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Alright, so we've got a full context there. Now, the last thing we need to do, coming back to Proverbs 28, verses 13. Notice, um, I'm, I'm attaching verse 14 to verse 13. 
and I didn't do this a week ago or a couple weeks ago. Uh, I started looking at it more and more. I was going to handle verse 14 as a separate doctrine, as a separate principle. But now that we're looking at it, um, and can I do this in five minutes? I don't know. Um, so we, we'll pick up here next week. There's a happiness, okay? An asherah happiness. This is another one of those where the, the translators like to use blessed, but it's not baraka blessing, it's asherah, and so it's happiness. Personal happiness. Happy is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So now this is a parallel to verse 13. Concealing transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Happy is the man who fears always. This is in the context of your sins, unconfessed and confessed as you're restored to fellowship. But he who hardens his heart. This is the man that he came to that conviction and he said, you know what? I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to confess. I don't need to confess. I'm fine with what I've done. And, and, and it's just a, it's a militant uh, reversionism. It's a militant rejection of forgiveness. Hardening the heart. Falling into calamity. So, yes, I'm going to take verse 14 and also color it green. I'm going to link these two together. Once, once I saw that, once I saw that it's not uh, a separate doctrine and it doesn't lead into verse 15, then all of a sudden the, the, some of the poetry in the Hebrew started to make better sense too. I said, oh, wait a minute. Okay. And the biggest thing that convinced me was the verb for fear. The verb for fear. What verb do you think that is? It's not what you think it is. And once I stopped assuming that it was the fear of the Lord, even some translations, I think, doesn't the NIV put fear of the Lord in there? Sad. Okay. Um, yeah, before God, the one who trembles before God, but whoever hardens his heart falls into trouble. No. Happy is the man who fears always. It's not fear of the Lord. Don't put God in a verse where God's not in the verse. Okay? So we're going to talk next week about what it means to be afraid. And what it means to be afraid in a confession of sin context. What are you afraid of when you confess? What are you afraid of when you don't confess? And um, not a reverence. Not the, not the yare fear of the Lord. But... A trembling. You are terrified. What is it you're terrified of when you're sinning and not confessing? Or when you're sinning and confessing. You can still be terrified even after you confess in a good way. So that's going to take a little bit and I, and I can't teach it in five minutes. So stay tuned. We'll pick up on that and then we'll get to the roaring lion and the rushing bear. That, the, neither one is good. Uh, like a wicked ruler over a poor people. And then a leader who is a great oppressor. So we have unjust political governance. That might be of interest to anybody. <laughs> okay, If you think that we have unjust political governments uh, in the federal, state, or local level. So, uh, got those coming up. 28 verses in this chapter. 27 verses in the next chapter. Man, the finish line is in sight. Can you taste it? Proverbs 30 is not Solomon's. Proverbs 30 belongs to Augur. And uh, Proverbs 31 is not Solomon's. King Lemuel. Not a code name for Solomon. Okay? So we'll introduce Augur. We'll introduce Lemuel. Uh, we'll learn about a virtuous woman. We've been waiting for it for a long time. <laughs> As I said on New Year's Eve, this is the year that we will be uh, concluding Proverbs. I'm pretty sure. We'll get through it by December at least. So. Uh, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for truth. I thank you for brothers and sisters uh, that are joining us here today. Thank you for the blessings of Proverbs. Thank you for confession. And I pray that we learn all of the parameters that go with confession, including confessing and forsaking. That if we are confessing without forsaking, if we are confessing with every intention to keep doing what we're doing anyway, then our confession is not a biblical confession. 
And I pray that we learn this. I pray that we start living this. I pray that we adjust. If there's any phoniness in our faith and practice, if there's anything that's illegitimate in what we do and how we do it, then I pray that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and spotlight for us the things that maybe we're doing the right thing, but we're doing it in the wrong way. Spotlight it for us, Father. Let the conviction of Scripture take hold so that we start uh, improving upon how we conduct ourselves in fear and godliness. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.